problem with patriarchy nowadays is with some of us educated folks is like people don't come and say to us in our face that we are secondary. It's just subtle. It's there. Like even in people's niceness, you can feel that morbid feeling of like not being welcome to the table where opinions matter, where power is equal. And so when it was also polite, I was like, I started towing the line, Sean. I had I had internalized those beliefs like a virus. It had got me. And, and so it was really this forgetfulness and that deep, hollow suffering because of the self-abandonment that followed. Fortunately, it didn't last long, but it was acute. It was like an it was like an amnesia of forgetting who I am, a goddess woman. I then um, went back to these goddess stories from my tradition, which were of these bold and, if I may say respectfully, badass goddesses <laughs> who were just doing what they wanted to do. I want to say it with respect. I don't want to hurt Hindu sentiment, but if you really look at those women, those goddesses, they were like really living outside the box with pleasure, sensuality, self-affirmation. Welcome to the Mindful Rebel podcast, where mindfulness and leadership intersect. In this episode of the podcast, I had the pleasure of chatting with Acharya Shunya. The first female lineage holder of her distinguished Vedic tradition, Acharya Shunya is a teacher, author, speaker, an internationally renowned scholar, and a classically trained master of yoga and Ayurveda. She is the founder of the Awakened Self Foundation and the nonprofit Badika Global, headquartered in Northern California. Both platforms are designed to empower, educate, and inspire a global community of students through online courses, workshops, and retreats. These conversations are furthered by Shunya's top-rated podcast, Shadow to Self. As an award-winning author, Shunya's newest book, Roar Like a Goddess, Every Woman's Guide to Becoming Unapologetically Powerful, Prosperous, and Peaceful, was recently released by Sounds True in September 2022. Uh, thank you. Uh, and I'm so excited to be here with you in conversation. Welcome to the show. Likewise, I love the juxtaposition of mindful rebel because I am that. Yes, we're going to talk about that. Um, I'm excited to be here in conversation because I felt like there was some alignment around the mindful rebel and then your book, We're Like a Goddess. So we're going to we're going to talk about that. Um, one of the places that I love to start with uh, podcast conversations is really around like your journey. Um, and I know that, you know, contextually, it's a, a, a sort of a major feat to be like the first female lineage holder in your tradition. So can you talk a little bit about your journey um, as first female lineage holder, sort of what that impact is, what that means and how that's connected with the work that you do with the Awaken Life, um, the Awaken Self Foundation? Um, yeah. So yeah, talk to me a little bit more about that. You know, Shauna was born, I'm, I'm born in a family and a culture that comes from a body of tradition called the Vedas. And Vedas by themselves are remarkably and ahead of their time, gender neutral. And they, they, they have given a voice not only to women along with men, but also those of the non-binary gender, because they proudly claim that the spiritual self, which is one in all of us, can choose any kind of body container, any genitals, any preferences, we're radically one. So that concept of oneness emanates from the Vedas. And so we have the teachings of yoga and Ayurveda and non-duality that come from there. 
But somehow India, like the rest of our planet, fell asleep to this, not just progressive, but organic and natural. And gosh, this is the truth kind of thinking. And the India I was born to of the 1960s was steeped in patriarchy, divisiveness, caste system, and um, class. And uh, I was born in a family that was promoting this these views, but they had only been these male leaders and a bunch of male disciples. But I'm proud that my great-grandfather must have foreseen that you and I are going to be chatting today because my great-grandfather, who was the Acharya or the leader of the lineage at that time, opened the assembly of seekers to women too. And so they would huddle in a corner and listen. Like at least they became worthy of listening. But then when my grandfather, his son became the leader, he started welcoming um, female students, even children of lower caste began to study with us if they were worthy seekers. So that was all very progressive things to do. So by the time I came along and he chose me at a very young age, that I'm going to grow up and carry forward this lineage when I didn't even understand what it meant. Clearly I had, I was fortunate to inherit uh, an immediate ancestors who were ready for the change. In fact, they were ready to return to the original vision of the Vedas. But then I came along, Sean, and I met with my own, uh, well, my own walls, you know, because it's not, you don't find your grandfather everywhere. Mostly you find people questioning who you are. And that's why I ended up having to roar with conviction and authority. And, um, and then I decided I'm just gonna invite everyone to the party to roar with me. Mm. So I wrote the book. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's beautiful. Um, you know, ch turning some of that, I'm sure, friction and adversity into this idea of like roaring, right? This sort of, uh, I think not only self-compassion, but also sort of reminding yourself of self-worth and sort of walking in that. How did your, how did your, your spiritual practice help you sort of stand tall in that sort of leadership, right? And something in a standing tall in a way in which, you know, your family understood sort of the the importance of that, but understanding that, as you mentioned, me meeting walls in other spaces that you've been that didn't sort of understand that and were connected to that sort of patriarchal, uh, you know, sort of energy. How did you How did you stand tall in that and how did your practice help you? I think I've gone through the same process that you may have gone through, Sean, or anyone who has really become, who has, who has been marginalized, who has been rejected or made invisible. And though I didn't meet that energy in my own family, it was almost like a bubble where I was reading these idealistic ideas of equality and oneness. And then boom, I got, I, I found myself in an arranged marriage. I had found myself being, being, uh, being approved or disapproved purely based on if I was willing to toe the line and be the ideal daughter-in-law who stays quiet and whatever, and you know, and does not question and support the men in her life. Whereas I was somebody who was clearly born to be the person I am today. 
I'm not even waiting to become something. I'm already that. And I was, I already knew that deep inside me. And I think to answer your question, a foundation of wisdom that's liberating, that's empowering, that is um, self-worth inducing, in, not in an egotistic way, but in a deeply realistic spiritual way, every blade of grass deserves respect and authority and self-referral. Then why would an entire woman who had been, uh, you know, who is educated both in Western stuff and the Eastern teachings, why would I, when it came to me, put up with that disrespect? And I found myself becoming really quiet for a while. And I talk about it in my book, how like uh, patriarchy and self-diminishing beliefs, the problem with patriarchy nowadays is with some of us educated folks is like people don't come and say to us in our face, that we are secondary is just subtle. It's there. Like even in people's niceness, you can feel that morbid feeling of like not being welcome to the table where opinions matter, where power is equal. And so when it was also polite, I was like, I started towing the line, Sean. I had, I had internalized those beliefs like a virus. It had got me. And, and so it was really this forgetfulness and that deep, hollow suffering because of the self-abandonment that followed. Fortunately, it didn't last long, but it was acute. It was like an, it was like an amnesia of forgetting who I am, a goddess, woman. I then um, went back to these goddess stories from my tradition, which were of these bold and, if I may say respectfully, badass goddesses <laughs> who were just doing what they wanted to do. I want to say it with respect. I don't want to hurt Hindu sentiment, but if you really look at those women, those goddesses, they were like really living outside the box with pleasure, sensuality, self-affirmation. I went back to the stories that my mother had told me at bedtime or my grandfather had shared with me their symbolism. And I said, well, if, if we are all one and if she dwells in me, then what am I doing being a victim? What am I doing suffocating my voice? And so it was that knowledge, those stories, plus my suffocation that became a perfect fertile soil for this woman to grow and this woman to roar with, okay, okay, no more. That's it. I've seen through that darkness. I'm not going to buy it anymore, you know? Yeah. And I think that's a perfect segue to talk a little bit more about the book. Because understanding that you came to this sort of realization, right? This this standing in your truth and in your self-worth and who you are, you know, reclaiming your own sort of goddesshood. Um, and then deciding to put that to paper. What, you know, what was the journey to writing War Like a Goddess? And can you tell the listeners, um, and keep in mind, hey, for everyone that's listening, uh, the book is available. Um, you can click down in the show notes and, you know, find all the links to uh, purchase the book. But can you talk a little bit about War Like a Goddess? How did you birth that? And maybe talk a little bit about sort of the meaning behind it. I love how in uh, in that there is a, a renewed attention towards the divine feminine. You know how we have a, a, a divine masculine God, for example, which, which are always the male gods, you know. 
And in some contexts, they're always white too, or always fair skinned or something like that. But then we have in the, in the pure Vedic tradition, these goddesses that, that are golden colored, brown colored, black as black could be, you know, there are all these goddesses with beautiful bodies and earthy bodies, more than beautiful, earthy, womanly, organic bodies, like unapologetically being feminine, yet they have power and yet they are dharmic. And the word dharma is a Sanskrit word, which is well known, but for some of our listeners, I can say it represents being conscious, being super conscious, being sensitive, being empathetic to another's needs, not just it's, this is not boldness from selfishness or self-absorption, um, but this is the mindfulness that comes with being a rebel or being a paradigm uh, changer, you know? And so that's who a rebel is, right? They change the paradigm because they must rebel. And so these goddesses were doing that. And there is a whole festival called Navratri, which I celebrate every year with, you know, seekers all from all around the world, kind of online, thanks to technology, we all join up and we chant and we talk and we share about these goddesses. And um, well, on the sixth day of that nine day festival, I was really working on an academic book on Vedic psychology and Ayurveda, the system of health from India. And I don't know, Sean, I can't explain it, but my own higher self, which is really one with a goddess dimension, just froze. I just couldn't complete that book, which is only really two months away from completion. I started a brand new page on my Mac. And in four months, I was channeling all this stuff, the, the, the passion from my heart and the grace of the goddess and this book came out, my publishers, it sounds true, loved it, loved it. <laughs> they sent me thank yous with exclamation marks. And it's been a riot since then. It really feels like the mother of all of us wants to be talked about. And previously to writing this book, Sean, probably I would have been on your podcast talking about something like non-duality or Ayurveda or yoga philosophy. This was my private practice as a practicing Hindu. You know, the goddess lives on my altar. It was my private business. I was not talking about her on the world stage. Here I am talking to the Metro and Yuko, you know, talking to uh, some newspapers in Bahamas. What's going on here? The goddess says it's time, you know. So that's, that's, that's the story. <laughs> no, that's beautiful. And I love that, that it, it sort of channeled into you and sort of <laughs> out and right into your Mac and right into uh manuscript that, that you're sharing as the book. And so with that, you know, understanding sort of this working with the divine feminine um, and connecting to this goddess energy and having this reverence um, there what does that mean for you? Like, as you, as you sat down and sort of cultivated this, um, the book, you know, what does it mean to roar like a goddess? What does, how could, as listeners who are, I'm sure, excited to purchase it, what does that look like? And what does that mean? That's a great question. So ultimately, for me, roaring meant 
um, you know, I start the book with like how the female voices on our planet are manipulative, seductive, explaining, begging, you know, kind of shrilled and nagging or disappointed and whiny. But then I explain that our real voice is a roar because there is a goddess called Durga who, who, who transports herself, who rides on a lion. And that lion represents probably masculine power, probably it represents authority, but she rides it. And it's not a beast of burden. Typically these animals, which are associated with our goddesses are called vahanas and they're extensions of those deities. And so I had heard and read mythology because I'm a scholar of those scriptures where she kind of has the sound when she is like very clear and about to take action, which sounds like a lion and it goes like, this, you know, she kind of goes like that. And, and, and they say that that's when the lion speaks through her. And I like that she doesn't have to be a lioness that she's riding on. So it's not like the female biology that we are, you know, upholding. It's more the feminine space, which is in sync with that male lion power, which is flowing through her in a way. And, and I thought, well, roaring then means claiming your true voice, claiming your self-authority, your sovereignty from within, rather than waiting for approval, permission, explain, you know, and those kind of things. And then Durga, in short, I have a section on Durga, and she teaches us about boundary, about when anger is appropriate, about channeling conscious and superconscious anger, about breaking stereotypes, about when, you know, how women <laughs> have been taught to be content, like contentment is the ornament of a woman and peacefulness and harmony. Well, when contentment can become a containment, especially by religions, and I, and I addressed all religions, look at Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, Islam, I went into those scriptures and pulled out the things where women were told to just be silent, you know, and be contained. So in Durga's section, we begin to roar with a self-reference power, with authority, with, um, um, with conviction. Then I go into the Lakshmi uh, part of the book, which, and this is a goddess of sensuality, beauty, wealth, and prosperity. But there's an interesting story, Sean, where she felt neglected. She felt invisible in her own story briefly. Mm. And so she got up and left. And she only reemerged to not only find herself a new crowd to support her, but she came back with like more self-worth. And I, and I wanted to say how self-worth is, she roared with self-worth. And that is why she's abundant. That is why she's the goddess of pleasure and happiness because she loves herself, period. She didn't put up with being tossed around. And finally, to conclude, Saraswati section is about the goddess who kind of meditates. She does her own thing. She's, she finds her inner mystic. You know, our listeners, why are they tuning in to us? It's not like um, we're giving them goodies in the material world to make them feel better. We're sharing some hard things here, but it's that inner quest. So then this roar is about self-recognition, deep self-awareness, deep self-familiarity and a relationship with our own self. So the roar changes 
but the roar is definitely connected with a deeper journey, Sean. Yeah. I'm super excited to, to check this out. Um, you know, as you were sharing, you know, as I, so I'm, for my listeners, they know that, you know, I teach yoga, uh, various meditation styles, and, you know, I've read stories on some of the Hindu goddesses. And one of the things I want to ask um, you very particularly, just because, uh, you know, as a scholar, um, as someone who this is very connected to you culturally, um, and I'm sure as someone who's on social media and you sort of see sort of the landscape of wellness and yoga in particular, how can teachers become better stewards of like culture, the iconography, and sort of like the foundational practices when we think about bringing in or, or sort of channeling, um, particularly in this context, um, some of the work of the goddesses, right? Because I've seen certain places places where people will bring them in or maybe call them in and or maybe they'll have a statue or have something, right? But, you know, I always like to ask this question because I'm a firm believer in minimizing our footprint on cultural appropriation and really leaning more into that cultural appreciation, right? Doing it in a way that's honorable and showing reverence, um, but not um, either stealing of that culture or sort of shaving it off and sort of putting your own spin on it. So. Is there a way that for some wellness practitioners, I know a lot of my listeners are, that we can work with those goddesses, bring them into practices, but also still be reverent and care and do it with care um, based on the culture? Well, one, thank you. Mm -hmm. Two, I think you answered your own question. I loved how you gave the solution in the question where instead of appropriation, we can do appreciation. Another thing you have shown by example is by inviting a scholar um, priestess of the tradition to come and talk to you, to talk about her book. And because for example, if, if you were to read my book, not only would you find my views, but then I have also not appropriated from the Vedas to make it mine. I give references to those scriptures. Ultimately, even whether I'm an Indian, or whether I'm an American uh, or, uh, you know, whoever, I need to go back to the root, the root of that knowledge. And the root of the knowledge is not me and my grandfather, but scriptures that came thousands of years, even before our lineage was around, though we've been around for 2000 years. So I'm also doing that. I'm also giving credit to the source. I'm also appreciating those ancient teachings like the Devi Mahatmaya Chandipat and these are names of some texts and some traditions. And what is from the oral tradition? And then what is from my soul? I clarify that. Like, what is my spin on something? What is my understanding on something? What is from the tradition? What is from the text? What is from my grandfather? I have this habit of constantly giving credit, constantly clarifying so that if I am a cog in the wheel of taking forward the knowledge, I don't muddle it up in the process. And so we're all doing it. And I think appreciation is the answer. But I don't think that the original Vedic seers who were happily not only men called rishis, but 27 women have contributed to the Vedas and they were called rishikas. So the rishis and rishikas 
wanted. They gave the concept of the world as a family. This first shows up in the Vedas 10,000 years ago by this Sanskrit saying, Vasudeva Kutumbakam, this world is one family. They also say ekam sat vibraha bahudavadanti, this is Sanskrit, which means there is really one truth of consciousness that different people just call it by different words, like Jesus or Allah or Rama or, you know, Durga, but it's really one truth. So I don't think the Vedas would ever want that only the brown-skinned people who pray a certain way get to practice the yoga, Ayurveda, the goddess teachings. They would, their vision was that the world is one family and we should all partake the grace of this knowledge. But yes, appreciation, not appropriation, respect, not dumping down, and then doing some work to go back and trace the antecedents of any piece of knowledge. So that's a very important, that's a very important um, discussion to have. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, no, and thank you for so skillfully sort of uh, bringing that into the approach. Um, um, you know, I always have this conversation on the podcast where I feel like, you know, it's divine sort of timing with my guests where they speak something directly in me. And I think quite often, I think the more and more I get into my own practice, I, I, in a full moment of transparency, I sometimes get hesitant because I'm like, am I, am I overextending or stepping into that place of appropriation and, and, not, and not on the side of appreciation? And so I always try to recontextualize that and make sure that, you know, to your point, where is this information coming from? Trying to source it and make sure that in my sharing it in my classes or in my teachings or anything that I do, that of course that's linked back to sort of that text. And and even to your point, I, I love that that perspective of like, yes, this comes from my teaching from from like the source, but then this also comes from my interpretation and this also comes from my lived experience. And all of those sort of work in tandem sort of as we transmit and share the teachings. So thank you for, for sharing that. And thank you for holding that space. Um, I think it's with teachers like yourself and role models like yourself, there is a greater and greater awareness coming in. And it goes both ways, even if, and if we are borrowing knowledge, if the East is borrowing knowledge from the West, or north from south, south from north, we all have to really be, one, it's a human legacy, but it, it's downright decency to give credit where it's due. And I guess this is just Dharma and we're waking up to it. Yeah. True. And it's also like, you know, I have a, a, a academic background um, prior to my movement in the wellness and uh, mindfulness space. And it's like, for me, it's also like, cite your sources. Like the academic in me is saying like, Cite your sources. Like that's that's also part of it too. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. So a question I have, and I, I know it probably sounds like, and it probably sounds like, duh, this is for everybody. But when you see a book, and and I had to initially sort of check my own, check myself as well. Um, and of course, we know that things like the patriarchy it creeps in subtly and in ways that we 
um, are aware and in ways in which we are sort of uncovering too. And even when I first saw your, your title of the books, like Roar Like a Goddess, I immediately was like, is this book for me? Or should, like, should I, like, you know, I immediately thought that. And I was like, hmm, what are, what is, what would you say to someone who's potentially interested in the topic, but because of the content around the goddesses may feel like, is this book for me? It is true that um, the word goddess feels like a, it's a bit more connected to women. And then even my title says women, just because it's like, it's something publishing does, which it tries to scope an audience. And I did want to have a real talk with women um, who are sharing certain common uh, roles such as motherhood and um, you know there there are some expectations around them but I keep reiterating this that really the goddess dwells in all of us the mothering principles dwell in all of us and her lessons can be can be applied in your professional world as a dad who is codependent or uh, you know, uh, not in their power with their own parents. So it can really work for anyone. And I feel like as the Roar movement grows, because it is becoming something like that, there is going to be another book from me or maybe co-authored by people like you, which is like a 2.0, you know, Roar Like a Goddess uh, for men, Roar Like a Goddess for gays, Roar is Like a Goddess for sexually fluid I feel like gosh you know um or like or more like duh yeah. we all have the same <laughs> issues yeah yeah so if you're listening to me one the divine masculine lives within me and the divine feminine lives in you because that divinity is really beyond gender and the divine masculine feminine are ways in which we connect to their nurturing or um, or strengthening principles, really, yeah. And you, you tapped on something, you mentioned it here a bit, and then you also mentioned it sort of when we first started our conversation. And you mentioned that, you know, quite often in a lot of maybe like Vedic scriptures uh, and sort of that reference to some of those early uh, gods and goddesses, that there is sort of gender fluidity there. And I just, and really, there's a yoga studio here in Atlanta that um, does a really, they do a lot of amazing sort of workshops that sort of talk about, uh, talk about that. And, you know, for me, the first time I listened, so as a, as a gay man, like, I was like, well, why isn't this highlighted a little bit more? Like, why isn't that aspect maybe talked about a little bit more? Or does that still factor into um, sort of how the story, the traditions are still handed down that the aspect of the gender fluidity of some of the gods and goddesses just isn't something that's at the forefront of the conversation. Because I was always so curious. I was like, really? Like, I just, as, when I was sitting in one of the workshops, I was just like, I need to go look this up. Like, I'm intrigued. Like, I just, there was something that kind of sparked in me that I'm like, it made me approach and look at, um, the work a little differently when I realized that that was the case. Even in Bhagavad Gita, there is a beautiful verse on how the self, the one self dwells in male, feminine, and 
blended gender, fluid gender bodies. So I quote, I quote that, I quote that verse frequently, including in my book, Sovereign Self, but you're right that it is, uh, it's kind of taken for granted in India, but it is, um, it is not been, the gender discussion has not been, um, um, uh, and I has not been a very prominent discussion in India because we are a patriarchal society, um, but it is, it is becoming more and more frequent and especially like now that there are women and men scholars like me who are saying, wait, our own tradition asks us to be more progressive. Look at this quote, look at this verse, look at these gods, look at Ardhanareshwara, who is half male, half female. And he's like Shiva Shakti blend. Or, or look at this goddess, you know, being a, being a male now or a male being a female now, this fluidity. And 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 between genders and between forms also, from human to animal, animal to fish, our own gods like Vishnu have like these avatars, which includes a turtle avatar or a fish avatar. This shows this inherent unity, really. That's what it shows. It shows this non-judgmental, inclusive approach. But I think it's gonna take this century to reinterpret the verses, because when the verses were being told, probably the society in India was in its progressive peak in the Satyuga, the pure Hinduism minus the patriarchal stains, the pure truth of like, we are one family. Whatever is your gender preference or sexual preference is really um, sacred. This teaching was a given at one time, then it was marginalized at some point. Like people want to go and worship the half male, half female God in the temple, like offer them flowers and incense, but really not think about the issue that they are representing. Mm -hmm. But then it comes to then authors and teachers and scholars like me in the 21st century who can then dare say, wait, wait, did we miss something here? Are we being told something? And I want to tell you while I were on this issue that in Ayurveda, which is a system of health and healing or sister science of yoga, which also I'm a scholar of, I found complete verses on, on, on generic conception and that how the soul can choose a male, female or a gay body. And it's totally normal and natural. And I'm planning to find time to put our articles and books on these kind of important findings where it's like considered the most normal thing to have these different orientations. It is the soul's choice and I love it, just love it. There was something warming about that, that I'm like, it, it's it's interesting because I know a lot of gender non-conforming, queer identifying folks, trans folks, gay folks that, magnetized to these practices because it gives them a level of self-awareness um, and comfortability in their body. And so I think it's beautiful that there's an underpinning of the of the philosophy that is welcoming and embracing of it. And I, that's, that's one of the reasons I was just like, why is this not highlighted more? Because I'm like, this is amazing. Um, but yeah, I appreciate yeah. it. 
I appreciate your your uh, insight on that because it, it it sincerely means a lot, and I'm hope the listeners uh, sort of pick up on that. But I, I think that's beautiful. And when I complete my essay on it, I will forward it to you to share with your listeners. Maybe. <laughs> please do, please yeah. do. Listen, as we start to, to wrap up our convo, I wanna just uh, create space. Is there anything else you'd like to share um, for those that are looking out for World Like a Goddess? Any sort of closing things you wanna share as um, your book is out, it's ready for public consumption? Um, yeah, anything else? Well, I just hope that if you, you, you may feel motivated to read the book, but if you find something empowering and liberating in it, this very practical guidance, then I hope you will gift it to a young boy or girl or a child who is right now finding themselves in their gender, because I really feel that this book is that important. In fact, my there is some talk in my own um, in with, with my publishers about converting my book into a comic book for children, so that because they want that very young children should get these archetypes of these emboldened women, uh, goddess figures, archetype figures who can teach us a thing or two about our own divinity, our own power within, our own boundaries, our own clarity. So that's what I would say, help, helps, help someone young so that if they have their power intact, their clarity intact, they would not succumb that quickly or they would be less vulnerable and more enlightened as they journey through our, our interesting planet. Hmm. Listen, the, the, the comic would be a great idea. I know so many kids that I'm like, I would definitely make sure that y'all got that. I think that's a great approach. And I think a, a beautiful way to sort of uh, almost serve as like a ripple effect to get the information out at a at such a critical point, right? Where the world hasn't gotten to them yet the way it's gotten to some of us as adults, that they're able to sort of internalize that and be able to live in that and and see that through as they continue to to get older. So that's that's beautiful. Um, I'm happy for you. I'm happy to see that. I know that's going to materialize, and that'll be really beautiful. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. Well, listen. Thank you so much for being on the show. This has been such a beautiful conversation. Um, I would love to chat with you some more, even past this. Like you know, definitely having you on some future episodes. Um, how can people get in contact with you, be in touch with you? What's the best channels for you? And whatever you share, it will be in for those that are listening, um, whether you're listening on YouTube, watching on YouTube, or you're listening on um, any of the podcast platforms, um, everything will be in the description section of whatever platform you're on. So yes, how can I they have get- social media channels by my name, Acharya Shunya. I'm particularly active on Facebook and Instagram, which is, my new like new fun place to hang and um, where I found you also there and you found me and my work and uh, my website is awakened self foundation where I teach um, classes and they are live streamed and um, lots of stuff on the goddess roaring goddess teachings 
festivals and uh, opportunities to mingle with with you know with roaring people yeah check it out beautiful all the roaring people connect make sure y'all click mm -hmm. those links follow subscribe check out the website and the social sites um listen thank you so much i, I sincerely appreciate being in community conversation with you um yeah and congratulations on the release of your book thank you Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Mindful Rebel Podcast. Take a moment to go down into the show notes and follow my guests on all their platforms or check out their website because I know you enjoy the nuggets of wisdom they shared with you in this episode. While you're in the show notes, take a moment and go to my website. That's seanjmore.com to stay up to date on any upcoming offerings I have to share. And then also subscribe on your favorite podcast platform to catch the next episode of the podcast. Thank you so much. And until next time, move into the rest of your day with a greater sense of peace, clarity, and freedom.